Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi friends, this is your host Dimitar. Today we've prepared a different episode which was not in our original planning. We'll be talking about Russian war propaganda and online disinformation amid the gruesome war in Ukraine. While we all pray for peace, I also hope that the people responsible for these atrocities and war crimes find neither peace nor comfort in their lives. I hope you find this podcast episode useful in understanding how the Kremlin operates in the information space and how its propaganda poisons not only our news feeds, but also the minds of Russian citizens. Today for this episode, we are joined by Monica Richter, who is the head of research and analysis at the intelligence firm Semantic Visions. Previously, Monica was part of the East Stratcom Task Force, specializing in disinformation at the European External Action Service. Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that great um, introduction. I, I sympathize and agree with every word. Yeah. Um, well, let's kick it off, even though it, it's not the best of occasions to be talking to you, Monica. But in the last few years, you have been tracing Russian propaganda and fake news on COVID, the situation in Belarus, and also the aggression buildup in Ukraine. When did it become clear to you that all of this is becoming all too real and that the information warfare might actually escalate into actual bloodshed? Well, let's remember um, Ukraine has been facing this bloodshed actually since 2014. Um, Russia has been waging an eight-year war of aggression against Ukraine. By some estimates, nearly 14,000 people uh, have been killed, and that's before the current invasion. Uh, and an integral part of that war, of course, is Russian disinformation and psychological warfare. Uh, in that regard, Ukraine has long been the Kremlin's guinea pig. Um, the Russian disinformation playbook used against the West the past several years began in Ukraine and was rolled out internationally in 2014 to weaken Western support for Ukraine and consequences for Russia after the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass. Uh, that, by the way, was also the impetus for the founding of the uh, EU's East Stratcom Task Force in 2015, uh, as you mentioned, where I worked. Uh, but the Kremlin's war against democracy in the West um, hasn't only been confined to Ukraine, right? Russia has used disinformation for years as a cloak to obfuscate and distract from its subversion and war against us, uh, or to hide its crimes, like in the case of the downing of Flight MH17 over Ukraine, uh, which um, uh, it blamed on Ukrainians uh, when in fact uh, it was a Russian book that downed the plane. So, I mean, the Kremlin has attacked us in our own countries with election interference, nerve agents, uh, the Salisbury poisoning, other assassination attempts, even blowing up infrastructure. That refers uh, to the 2014 attack in the Czech Republic uh, when the uh, GRU blew up ammunition depots, uh, which were destined for, for Ukraine. Um, so it's been bloody for a long time, but we tolerated all of this escalation since 2014, failed to see where it was leading, 
Uh, yes, there were sanctions, but these were weak and they didn't change the Kremlin's behavior. Um, we didn't recalibrate our strategy. Uh, and the situation today is therefore really a direct result of our policy failure. You are absolutely right. And, and I mean, Ukraine for a while has been the testing ground of, of Russian propaganda, disinfo, um, kinetic warfare, even cyber attacks. Um, and you're absolutely right. We've tolerated this for a while. I mean, it's not as if we didn't see it coming, right? That's right. That's right. We did. Uh, we should have. We should have. Um, all of the writing was on the wall. I think that that we we are right to be more or less angry that we didn't take more action, especially in certain certain Western capitals. Um, but let's get get back on on track on our, on our discussion about propaganda and what's happening on the ground now, because the situation is horrific and it's escalating as we speak. Um, in your opinion, Monica, what are the most egregious cases of Russian propaganda since the start of, of this war in the last two weeks? God, there's been so much. Um, it's all egregious. Some of the most shamefaced lying and deceit that we've ever seen from the Kremlin. I think that some of the most appalling in, in face of the horrible images of the Russian military's civilian shelling, especially uh, like the maternity hospital in Mariupol, is that Ukraine is killing its own people. Um, so the Kremlin's framing that this is a, a you know, um, a special military operation, quote unquote, uh, or a humanitarian operation, um, a liberation of Ukraine from neo-Nazis, right? While the Russians are of course, indiscriminately bombing apartment blocks, schools, hospitals, it's just the height of evil and mendacity. Um, I'm also very worried about the recent wave of new false flag disinformation that Ukraine is supposedly preparing a chemical or biological attack with US help. Uh, in the monitoring that, that we've been doing um, on, a, on a very large scale, we've seen a significant uptick in this messaging uh, in Russian media and state media the last few days. And given the Kremlin's past MO, it could very well mean that this is exactly what Russia is actually planning um, to do either in Ukraine or elsewhere, you know, potentially in Belarus, um, uh, just to further justify and, uh, and escalate its, its attack. And in terms of communication of, of, of these uh, messages and this online poison of, of, of falsehood, are they using only national media channels or they're firing all cylinders on social media? Walk us through very quickly which avenues of, of the information space they're using right now. Um, I mean, they are using they are using all avenues, the usual avenues. They're using um, Russian uh, state media, obviously, um, both outlets like RT and Sputnik internationally, um, as well as um, the attendant social media channels. Uh, and domestically, they are using uh, every resource uh, at, at their disposal, both um, state television um, broadcasting, as well as um, uh, state-run media. And of course, I mean, the entire uh, media ecosystem in Russia is extremely tightly controlled, uh, as we know, to increase uh, the censorship of what's really going on in Ukraine. They've started shutting down um, Western social media platforms as well. Uh, basically to to prevent, you know, any trickling in of, of the truth of, of what's really happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's all guns out. 
you, you mentioned um, the most notorious ones, Russia Today and Sputnik. Do you think that the recent bans on outlets such as RT and Sputnik, um, or even the, the, the bans on certain social media channels can help limit this spread of falsehoods? And another, another question in here, like um, being a bit provocative, what if these bans on these outlets, does this actually feed into the Kremlin's own narrative that, you know, here's the West, they're censoring us, they're being aggressive? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've um, we've we've heard those lines for years, right? They've lobbed those accusations at us, um, even when we were taking virtually no action. Um, I mean, really, at this point, given what Russia has done, we are uh, beyond these concerns, in my, in my view. I don't think there's any room for playing devil's advocate. Uh, Putin's Russia is a terrorist rogue state that should be utterly isolated and cut off from the international community, right? The, the regime just totally starved um, of oxygen and, and money as well, right, to wage this war. So in my view, these bans are fully justified. Frankly, it should have happened sooner. Uh, RT and Sputnik really are, are tools of the Kremlin's political warfare against the West, against our citizens. And there's no fundamental right to allow criminal, kleptocratic, authoritarian regimes to pump their propaganda and disinformation into our societies. Um, this is a matter of national security, and, and that's how we should explain these decisions to our own citizens. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm really thankful for, for you being so explicit on this point, because in the last couple of years, surrounding national elections, European elections, uh, uh, warfare or, or hot conflicts in different spots, we, we've seen these channels in operation. And Frankly, many people in, in capitals like Brussels were always quite on the soft side when it comes to actions, bans, and, and so forth. So I think it's very important to finally wake up and realize that we have to take serious action against against these outlets. Yeah, now, what's, what's surprising for me, and I'm, I'm I'm positively surprised, is that even though we are barraged by this by this propaganda and, and hate and lies, it seems as if in the information space globally. Ukraine is, is winning the sympathies of, of, of people, with maybe with few exceptions. Uh, and I agree. I mean, seeing the incredibly um, savvy and effective um, strategic communications response from the Ukrainians um, has been wonderful. Um, I mean, that, that really has been a, a highlight of, of this horror. Um, so yeah, their response has been very effective, both domestically to rally the population uh, and, and boost morale and, and confidence, as well as internationally and towards Russia, where the truth about the war has been aggressively uh, sort of suppressed. Uh, you know, one brilliant tactic was filming videos with Russian POWs um, and having them call their parents, their mothers at home, uh, and tell them what they've been up to, that, that they are, you know, in Ukraine killing Ukrainians. Uh, I mean, this is this is incredibly powerful. Um, so part of the reason why I think this has also happened uh, is because Russia largely ceded the ground to Ukraine on the information or narrative front because the invasion has so far gone very badly. And they are desperate to censor that failure, especially from their own citizens. Uh, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Kremlin has also tried very hard to spin the war as a liberation effort. But this is such a transparent and disgusting lie, you know, obvious to everyone who sees the images coming out of Ukraine. 
that this effort to control the narrative has just failed miserably. The other advantage, uh, I suppose, if, if you can even say it like that, uh, is that this is the first conflict or war in recent memory that's really black and white in terms of good and evil, potentially the Syrian war as well, um, uh, but that's more complicated. Uh, so in this case, right, the Ukrainians are so clearly the good guys attacked by an evil empire, literally defending their homeland, fighting for their freedom with, um, you know, a, a heroic, charismatic le leader uh, capturing public imagination. Whereas Russia and Putin are like a caricature of the bad guy, right? The Hollywood villain driven by pure cruelty, destruction, greed, utter disregard for human life. There's, there's just nothing, nothing redeeming about the Russian position. The world is finally seeing the regime for what it is. We, we all agree with what you just said about the, the obviousness of what's happening. But now comes the, the I don't know, the $1 million question or the, or the trillion ruble question. Are the Russian, the Russians themselves, the Russian population, are they also perceiving this as such? Are they also so clear in their thinking? Do they realize that this is actually happening? That this is a bloody fraternal war? Or maybe, um, even though that we in the West, we are so certain what's actually happening, but maybe the sentiment within Russia is a bit different. There, there isn't a simple answer to this question uh, because the Russian population obviously isn't homogenous, right? No, no population is. In Russia, you have people who are vehemently opposed to Putin and see the war as we do as criminal. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Russian nationalists or ultra-nationalists who share um, you know, the Kremlin's or, or Putin's view that Ukraine does not have the right to exist as an independent state. And they are cheering this war, right? This is um, you know, very visible um, in, in, for example, that uh, fascist... Um, um, you know, letter Z, Z campaign uh, that has been making its way around um, uh, Russian social media. And partly, I mean, that's, that's you know, orchestrated also by, by the state. Um, but there are also, you know, undoubtedly organic elements of support to that. Uh, but the reality is that there are some preliminary polls that appear to show Putin's rating increasing over the last couple of weeks, uh, as it did after the annexation of Crimea. Uh, and while there have been some some not notable protests as well against the war, they're still you know small in terms of of the Russian population. We're we're not seeing people turning out in the tens or or really hundreds of thousands against the war. And um, you know that's that's partly a consequence of uh, you know the the regime's you know um, uh, incredibly aggressive um, censorship and and punishment of protest. Right. So there is undoubtedly um, a, a significant culture of fear. My, my, my fear <clears throat> in the long run is that, of course, Putin's rating might, might go up. This is to be expected, the rallying of the troops and all. But even if we have this very important segment in the Russian society, which is strongly against the war and potentially is, would, would not support it, would, would argue against it, in the last decade or so, these people have been so isolated, either persecuted, either um, basically limited in, 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 the, in the, the reach they have in the civil society, within the, the country itself, 
is that, and this is my fear, that these people are almost unable to rally, almost unable to organize their their uh, their protest against the war. And if this protest is not shared by the internal circle of Putin, we're not gonna see any change. And lastly, my my hope though is that when it comes to strategic communication, I, I'm certain that the average Russian is not gonna buy uh, Western uh, messaging or, or whatnot. But the amazing communication coming from Ukraine, even from Zelensky himself in Russian, this is the hope I have that they'll people realize that this is about a bloody fraternal war. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it, it will be a matter of time to see, um, you know, how um, uh, deeply the um, uh, STRATCOM response from Ukraine is able to penetrate the, uh, the Russian public. I mean, it's still very early days, right? It's been basically two weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it remains to be seen, you know, one um, almost, you know, incomprehensible um, um, thing that's that's coming out of all of this is that, you know, there have been multiple reports about people in Ukraine calling their relatives in Russia and telling them that the Russian military is bomb- bombing civilian targets. And, you know, their Russian relatives are in complete denial and say, you know, no, that's that's not happening. It's your government. Um, you know, the the um, uh, neo-Nazi regime in Kiev that is that is bombing civilians. Right. It's not us. Um, so there is this there is this denial. But um, at some point, right, that dam is likely to break. Right. I mean, especially with the war you know, going as badly as it is for the Russians uh, with morale, you know, very, um, um, very low. Um, you know, there are cracks in the foundation. Yeah, we, we all hope that this this dam is going to break. Um, but now I just wonder, because we've been talking about the West's unified response, how we we all more or less know what's happening and, 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 and see the, the audacity of, of, of the of the trust is there. But I just wonder, when we talk about Putin's potential allies or other international actors, who are not so outspoken. I just wonder about China. Where do you see China in all of this? Because when we look at their communication in the last couple of weeks, we even see how they're even repeating some of the Kremlin's talking points. So I'm just a bit worried, let's say, that Putin has an ally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean... You know, in terms of its public communication, um, yes, China is trying to forge a middle way, uh, neither criticizing nor explicitly supporting the invasion. Um, Earlier this week, in a virtual meeting with um, uh, Macron and Schultz, uh, she called for peace and maximum restraint uh, to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe in Ukraine. But he, of course, didn't call out Russia or Putin uh, who are obviously the, the singular culprits. Uh, he did criticize the destabilizing effect of Western sanctions, though, right? And over the last several months, uh, Russia and China have, have moved closer together uh, on, on the world stage, right? Um, um, you know, before the Olympics, Putin and Xi issued a joint statement affirming a partnership, quote, without limits, uh, and she had allegedly asked the Kremlin to wait until after the Beijing Olympics were over uh, to to invade Ukraine. 
Uh, and then also, you know, as, as we've seen previously, especially in context of the COVID-19 pandemic, where there was a real alignment in Russian and, and Chinese disinformation, you know, the, the, the Chinese really took a, a page out of the uh, Russian disinformation playbook and in, in spreading disinformation and, and conspiracy theories using both official you know, state, state channels and uh, representatives as well as media. Uh, so that is, that is obviously concerning. One good thing uh, I would mention is that it does appear that the strong Western response to Ukraine and the, the isolation of Russia really have quite surprised uh, the, the, the Chinese leadership um, and have given pause you know, to, to thoughts about a similar takeover of Taiwan, right? Uh, but I mean, that, that said, right, Xi Jinping's fixation on Taiwan shouldn't be underestimated. Um, but, you know, that's, that's one, you know, potential um, silver lining. I just want to pick up on a very important point you just stressed about the fact that the Chinese are even potentially copying from the Kremlin's playbook on this information. This has been known more or less in the last couple of years. We've seen um, how they've copy-pasted with lesser uh, success, I must say, because the Chinese are a bit more blunt in their communication. But this is a very important point. We've allowed... Chinese, uh, sorry, Russian propaganda to spread, the playbook to be copied. And now we see many, many countries um, aspiring to copy this model. Which brings me to to our final point. Um, How do we respond? Um, And and, and a bit of context. Um, Do you think that our national and European institutions are prepared for all of this? Because it's been, what, almost a decade, Monica, right? since yep. we've seen all of this happening in the information space. We all know the examples, but we've had a lot of resources and time devoted to setting the setting up of um, national and inter- international, even bureaucracies, institutions, strategic disinformation units, a European rapid alert system. I remember it fondly from <laughs> 2017, 2018. Um, so we can find better ways not only to refute fake news and disinformation, but also find ways to actively communicate to our citizens. So how do you see it? Did we actually learn all of these lessons? We saw it coming. We, we devoted enough money, hopefully, for it, or maybe we didn't. So where do we stand right now? And how optimistic are you about our future response to all of these issues? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very good question. Yeah, you know, the the EU is very good at setting up, um, you know, bureaucratic elements, um, you know, teams and units and and procedures to, um, you know, uh, address any possible problem, but the the actual effectiveness, right, remains in question. Yeah, I mean, I, I take a very grim view of how the West collectively has dealt with the challenges of information disorder, broadly speaking. This is um, not a a singular problem. There are many um, different elements to it. And those are important to distinguish because if we are able to define the individual problems correctly, then we understand that there are different solutions needed to those different problems. So one part of the challenge is that of of our digital information and communications architecture, 
which creates pernicious conditions for, for the spread of uh, disinformation and misinformation, conspiracy theories, you know, other harmful content, uh, promotes radicalization and polarization, and, you know, thus ultimately, as we've seen, undermines the fabric of, of democracy, right? Uh, but another part is um, the war on truth and democracy that's, that's being waged by autocracies, Right. Not just Russia, but China, Iran and others. And what we really need to understand, and this is, I think, where we've failed repeatedly and persistently over the years to our own detriment, you know, leading to Ukraine being, you know, the, the bloody sacrifice, you know, on um, on the altar of democracy or, or in really this existential conflict between democracy and, you know, modern authoritarianism. Um, right, this is political warfare going beyond disinformation and the usual social media manipulation we hear so much about to a much broader, um, really multi-pronged influence playbook aimed at co-opting democratic decision-making for authoritarian interests. The EU is doing relatively okay on, on the first problem, the, the tech problem, right? The, the conditions that allow for exploitation, um, attempting to establish new digital standards and tech regulation uh, to, to minimize conditions for the spread of online harms. This is the purview of the Digital Services Act, for instance. But on the second point, as I mentioned, um, there has been a very troubling history of inaction. Uh, political warfare requires deterrence, right? The imposition of costs, the elimination of avenues of malign influence and, and foreign interference. It means not appeasing authoritarianism, not thinking that you can separate business or economic interests from politics, from democratic security, which should be our number one priority. And yeah, I mean, this is what the EU and the West have gotten so wrong over the last 10 plus years. Um, we've been naive, we've been complacent, uh, and it's ultimately why Putin felt empowered to reinvade Ukraine. So this is our fault too. It's the consequence of our appeasement, of our political naivete, and privileging um, economic and business interests over democratic security. Uh, I mean, frankly, you know, this is, I think, best epitomized um, by, you know, the, the mercantilism of German foreign policy uh, at the expense of, of democratic security and national security, frankly. I mean, Germany has been um, one of the absolute weakest links um, uh, in, this, in this fight. Um, you know, they have, they have consistently um, appeased, um, uh, appeased Russia, um, you know, sought dialogue and uh, allowed themselves to be the victims of Russian um, strategic corruption. And only now, you know, when there is a gun to their heads, have they, you know, finally, um, um, you know, taken some steps, not nearly enough, you know, but, but some steps um, to correct course. And I mean, I shouldn't only point the finger at, at Germany, right? I mean, um, this has been a, a persistent uh, particularly Western European problem, right? I mean, Eastern European countries, right? The Baltics, for example, that have been warning about the threat that Russia represents have been, you know, laughed out of the room really since um, uh, 2007, 2008. 
Um, and, you know, um, there have been, there have been, you know, multiple kind of, you know, snarky remarks that, you know, I've, I've registered from, you know, East Europeans saying that, you know, they are now ready to um, accept apologies from all of the Western European, you know, establishment people, you know, who, who doubted them because, you know, um, all of our warnings, and I say our because, you know, I, um, I also, you know, tried to champion this perspective as much as I could when, when I was uh, working for the EU and I still do, you know, our warnings were vindicated in the most horrific way possible. And it is to our eternal shame that we had to learn this lesson again by, you know, Ukraine being the blood sacrifice. You know, the sanctions that have been implemented now, um, you know, in response to the invasion um, are, you know, far too little, far too late, right? I mean, this is what we should have been doing years ago. So this really is on us and it, it remains to be seen whether this war finally and fundamentally changes our calculus. Um, you know, so far the response has been better than I expected because I was very, very pessimistic about, um, um, you know, particularly some of those, you know, holdouts that I mentioned, um, you know, who were unwilling for a long time, you know, to um, um, support Ukraine militarily, right? I mean, Germany only, you know, agreeing to send 5,000 helmets, right, which was an absolute insult. I mean, I, it, it's, it's still early to tell. There are positive signs, but, you know, again, our track record for the past 10 plus years um, has been very, very bad. Um, there is a lot of strategic corruption that is, you know, still, still in place. Um, you know, our, our economies are closely intertwined uh, and it remains to be seen whether we are able to sever those ties. So I'm, I'm hopeful, but we will see. Yeah, we're, we're all hopeful. And Monica, this has been extremely emphatic uh, on your side, the way you put all of this in perspective in the last couple of minutes. And just to reiterate to our listeners, as Monica said, in a way, this has been on us. We've been naive. We've been complacent. There is the need for political action, actual deterrence, and not appeasing authoritarian influence. And the brave state of Ukraine should not continue to be the scapegoat for our complacency and our inability to tackle these issues. Um, dear friends, this was the voice of Monica Richter, head of research and analysis at the intelligence firm Semantic Visions. Monica, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. 